Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This article is from The National. Date 5th August 2022. From the Culture section. The Flash, film still going ahead despite multiple Ezra Miller controversies. By Laura Webster. Warner Brothers superhero blockbuster The Flash, which was partially filmed in Glasgow, is still going ahead amid ongoing controversies surrounding its star Ezra Miller. Franchise boss David Zaslav said the studio was very excited about the spate of upcoming films, including Black Adam, Shazam, Fury of the Gods and The Flash. It comes after the surprise news that DC would be scrapping its upcoming Batgirl film, filmed completely in Glasgow, months before it was due to be released in late 2022. We have seen The Flash, Black Adam and Shazam 2, Zaslav said, according to Variety, during the company's Q2 earnings call on Thursday. We are very excited about them. We've seen them. We think they are terrific and we think we can make them even better. Miller, who identifies as they-them, has been embroiled in multiple controversies in the past several months, including being arrested twice in Hawaii on charges including second-degree assault and disorderly conduct at a karaoke bar. The actor's exact whereabouts are currently unknown, but they have also been accused of the abuse and grooming of a young girl. The Flash, part of the DC Justice League universe, is scheduled for release in June 2023. Following news that Batgirl was being axed by Warner Brothers, directors Adil El Arby and Bill Alfala said they were saddened and shocked. In a joint statement on Instagram, the pair wished fans could have the opportunity to see and embrace the final film themselves. Batgirl was due to star Hollywood A-listers Michael Keaton, Brendan Fraser, J.K. Simmons and Leslie Grace. Production reportedly cost an estimated $70 million and the film was scheduled for release in late 2022. After test screenings, the studio decided to shelve the production completely and it will no longer appear in cinemas or on streaming service HBO Max, according to US outlets. That article was by Laura Webster. 
This article is from The National, date 8th August 2022, from the Culture section. Candied in Glasgow is an outdoor opera for our times, by Mark Brown. Candide, the satirical novella by Voltaire, is one of the great works of philosophical literature. First published in 1759, the book takes a darkly comic sideswipe at the inordinate optimism of those who believed that all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. Contemplating terrible events, such as the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, in which appalling suffering seemed indiscriminate, Voltaire spins his young protagonist Candide out of his sheltered academic paradise. So influential did the novella become that it bequeathed to humanity the adjective Panglossian, a reference to Candide's hyper-optimistic teacher Dr Pangloss. Voltaire's book has had a tremendous cultural as well as philosophical influence over the almost three centuries since it was written. Writers and artists in various fields have created works inspired by Candide. Perhaps the most famous is the comic operetta by the American composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein. Despite a poor critical reaction when it opened on Broadway in 1956, the work has undergone various revisions and additions, including some new lyrics by Stephen Sondheim for the 1973 revival and revisions by Bernstein himself in 1987. Ironically, it was optimism and undeterred faith in the possibilities of Bernstein's original work that would make Candide a much-loved staple of the modern operatic canon. So much so that Scottish opera has considered our world, which is so abundantly resistant to Panglossian optimism, and decided that now is a good time for staging a Bernstein piece. The production will play as part of the Live at Number 40 mini-festival of outdoor performances at Scottish Opera's production studios in Glasgow, a mini-festival that began last year in response to the Covid pandemic. Bringing together professional opera singers with a community chorus, the show will offer audience members the opportunity to follow Candide on his journey in promenade, those who prefer or require to be sedentary can watch the action from the comfort of a seat. The production, which opens on Thursday, will be joined in the summer season by a concert by the Orchestra of the Scottish Opera on August 17th and a revival of Dominic Hill's excellent staging of Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors for the Citizens Theatre Company August 26th to September 3rd. Candide is being directed by Jack Furness an experienced stage artist and founding director of the Shadwell Opera Company, which is based in East London. I caught up with him in the midst of rehearsals. Does Voltaire's story, in which the chaos of the world destroys the almost utopian optimism of the book's titular pro protagonist, seem timeless? I ask the director, 
given everything humanity is currently experiencing from COVID to the climate catastrophe and war from Yemen and Syria to Ukraine. It's amazing how modern it seems, he says. However, Furness adds, humanity's outlook in 2022 contrasts starkly with the philosophical optimism that Voltaire was satirising in the mid-1700s and the confidence of the post-war United States that Bernstein observed in the 1950s. Voltaire was very much into puncturing cosy optimism, the director comments. The same goes for Bernstein when the operetta was originally written in the 1950s. I don't know that most people are that optimistic at the moment. We've had our bubble thoroughly burst by the pandemic or the financial crash. I don't think that we live in a particularly optimistic age now. The director and the company have been asking themselves, where does that optimistic philosophy now reside? In Voltaire's day, Furness continues, it was rooted in the church. And when Bernstein wrote the operetta, it rested on faith in the American dream of untrammeled capitalist growth. These days, the director suggests, optimism is based on very flimsy foundations. All that 21st century capitalism has to offer is the hollow cheerfulness of reality TV shows and the idea that you can make yourself happy by clicking a button and getting an Amazon delivery. The best way to honour the satirical intentions of both Voltaire and Bernstein is, Furness believes, to make Scottish operas candied very much of our times. If it's a satire, he avers, it has to be, it has to have contemporary targets. The process of updating Voltaire's story has been assisted greatly, the director says, by the inherent and deliberate chaos of the Frenchman's original narrative. All Furness had to do in connecting that with the mayhem of our own times was to make sure that his production didn't try to rationalise the chaos into one idea. The whirlwind in which Voltaire places his young protagonist is famously picaresque, as Candide is transported from one scene of destruction and suffering to another. The director intends to reflect the episodic character of the book in his staging of Bernstein's operetta. We have, he explains, really tried to treat each scene as a world in, its, in itself. In doing so, Furness is blessed with a superb cast. The celebrated tenor, William Morgan, who played one of the titular leads in Scottish Opera's recent production of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Gondoliers, will perform the role of Candide. The acclaimed Trinidadian tenor Ronald Sam will take on the characters of Dr Pangloss and Voltaire, among others. The show's cast of international opera singers will be joined by an 80-strong community chorus. The impressive group has been assembled in partnership with Maryhill Integration Network, an organisation based a stone's throw from Scottish Opera Studios that uses artistic projects to bring together asylum seekers, refugees and settled inhabitants of Glasgow. 
Furness is full of admiration for the energy and dedication that the community players have brought to the piece. Indeed, he notes that in writing the operetta, Bernstein brought the Jewish migrant experience to bear. Born in the US, the composer was the son of Ukrainian Jewish immigrants. It seems appropriate that a piece by Bernstein, a noted humanist who campaigned against the Vietnam War and nuclear weapons, should have a chorus that includes people who are seeking sanctuary from war and persecution here in Scotland. Candide plays at the Scottish Opera Studios, 40 Eddington Street, Glasgow, August 10th to 20th, scottishopera.org.uk. That article was by Mark Brown. This article is from The National, date 8th August 2022, from the News section. Nicola Sturgeon issues SQA Results Day message to Scots students by Xander Elliards. Nicola Sturgeon has sent her best wishes to students across Scotland ahead of Results Day, saying she can still remember how she felt when it was her turn. On Tuesday, more than 140,000 Scottish pupils will receive their higher, national and advanced higher grades from the Scottish Qualifications Authority, or SQA. Pupils will find out their results via post, email, text, phone, or by logging on to their MySQA account. It's the first time since the COVID pandemic that the results will be for exams sat in person, although Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville said it was not yet a return to normality. Continued disruption as a result of COVID-19 meant there had to be a different approach to exams, she said. That approach, which was informed by views from across the education system, as well as learners themselves, had one clear aim, to deliver a fair set of results for our young people while maintaining the integrity of qualifications. Sending her best wishes to students across Scotland, the First Minister wrote on Twitter, Good luck to everyone expecting exam results tomorrow. It's more than 30 years since I left school, but I still recall the anticipation and anxiety of Results Day. I know there will be much success to celebrate, but remember the At Skills Dev Scott helpline is still there for advice. Sturgeon shared a post from Skills Development Scotland which has set up a helpline to advise young people on the steps they can take after Results Day, regardless of what grades they get. Jan Whelan, a career advisor at SDS, admitted that she had called the helpline in tears when she was 16. Now, after 14 years of working with students on Results Day, Whelan said the key is knowing what the options are. She said, I've been there and I've thought, why didn't I do this and why didn't I do that when I was younger? But you can look at apprenticeships, you can go to college, you've got all these different routes. So I think it's about being aware of that and what's available. 
Separately, business leaders from across Scotland have promised Scottish youngsters they will recognise and value qualifications as much as any other year, ahead of results day. In a letter to students, signed by 18 business leaders, firms committed to creating good jobs for youngsters as they enter the world of work, while reminding them that there are different career pathways to take regardless of their grades. The letter, written by Sandy Begbie of Scottish Financial Enterprise, also said that qualifications will be valued the same as any other year. We want to reassure you that we recognise and value your qualifications as much as any other year and that the skills you have developed and will continue to develop will play a crucial role in ensuring a bright future for businesses in Scotland and our economy, the letter said. The results helpline can be reached on 0808 100 8000 from 8am Tuesday, August 9th. That article was by Xander Elliards. This article is from The National, date 8th August 2022, from the Politics section. Nicola Sturgeon calls for emergency meeting over cost of living. By Abby Garton Crosby. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has written to Boris Johnson demanding an emergency meeting of the heads of government council over the cost of living crisis. Johnson is currently on a honeymoon break to a plush, eco friendly hotel in Slovenia and has not made any public appearances since the Bank of England announced last week that the UK is set to descend into a lengthy recession and will see a hike in interest rates and inflation is predicted to peak at 13%. And now the Scottish First Minister has written to the caretaker Prime Minister demanding a planned meeting of the Intergovernmental Council for September to be brought forward to deal with the fast deteriorating situation. Number 10 confirmed they had received the letter and would respond in due course, claiming that senior officials were already in the process of setting up a four-nation meeting at Johnson's behest. A spokesperson said this was in line with previous requests from devolved administrations that these meetings are meaningfully planned for in advance. It comes after the SNP's Westminster leader Ian Blackford urged the PM to recall the House of Commons to allow MPs to debate the cost of living crisis and rising energy bills. Last week, Ofgem announced that the price cap on utility bills will now be set every three months instead of six, with customers expected to pay up to £3,850 in October. In her letter to Johnson, the First Minister proposed that the heads of government council meet as soon as possible to discuss steps to help the most vulnerable and plan ahead for the winter months. The Four Nation Group is made up of the heads of the UK, Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish governments. She wrote, While we will continue to take all actions available to us within devolved responsibilities and budgets, the Scottish Government is investing almost £3 billion this year in a range of measures which will help address the cost of living pressures. 
it is a statement of fact that many of the levers which would make the biggest difference lie with the UK government. It is also the case that only the UK government can access and make available resources on the scale required. Therefore, actions by devolved governments alone, though important, will not be enough to meet the unprecedented challenges we face. The First Minister added that those on low incomes need the government to take action immediately as they are increasingly vulnerable to rising household costs. Sturgeon also called for a substantial plan to be developed ahead of autumn and winter to avert a crisis of unprecedented proportions. A crisis in which many people will feel unable to feed themselves and their families or heat their homes, she added. Those on low incomes, the First Minister told Johnson, are being hit hardest and she called for targeted support rather than an irresponsible reduction in broad-based taxes which will benefit the relatively better off over those most in need. It is also vital that any tax cuts introduced by the UK government do not result in tighter controls on spending which will impact on delivery of public services already under immense pressure. Referencing the Bank of England's announcement on the incoming recession due to hit the UK, Sturgeon said the crisis requires clear, focused and determined leadership and cooperation to develop and deliver, at pace, a package of interventions to protect those most impacted. The First Minister added, The Scottish Government recognises our responsibility and is committed to doing all we can. However, we cannot respond on the scale required without action by your government. Such action is needed now, and I will make myself and my officials available so that a meeting can take place this week. Sharing the lengthy letter on social media, the First Minister added, The cost of living crisis is worsening by the day. Food, energy and housing costs are soaring, and destitution is a stark prospect for many. At ScotGov we'll do everything we can and I will convene a resilience committee this week, but the key powers and resources are held by the UK government. Action is needed now and a clear plan to help those in need must be developed for autumn winter. I have therefore written to the PM seeking a Four Nations Heads of Government Council meeting this week. The current Westminster paralysis can't go on. People need help now. Asked if the PM will convene an emergency meeting, a number 10 spokesperson said, We recognise the pressures families across the UK are facing due to rising prices caused by global challenges. That's why the UK government is providing 689,000 households in Scotland with the 650 cost of living payment, £300 for all Scottish pensioners and £400 to help people with their energy bills. We've also provided an extra £82 million for the Scottish Government to help vulnerable families at their discretion, in addition to the significant income tax and welfare powers they already have. 
the UK government's spending review provided the Scottish government with a record £41 billion annual settlement for the next three years, and we will continue to work collaboratively with them. That article was by Abby Garton Crosby. This article is from The National, date 8th August 2022, from the Culture section. Piping Live. Fantastic scenes as dozens of pipers march through Glasgow playing Scotland the Brave. By Laura Webster. More than 150 pipers and drummers of all ages marched through Glasgow's city centre to mark the launch of Piping Live 2022. It's the first time musicians have been able to take part in the annual celebration of the piping tradition since 2019. Musicians, aged between 8 and 86, joined the pack of big band performers heading down West George Street with thrilled supporters following them along. The Piping Live Festival, which is the biggest of its kind in the world, has been going on for 19 years and brings around 30,000 attendees to Glasgow each summer. Finlay MacDonald led the big band parade from Blythswood Square to George Square as the group played Scotland the Brave on their instruments. The director of piping at the National Piping Centre, who is also the festival's artistic director, said it was a proud moment. The collaboration of people of all ages and the eagerness of those less experienced to get involved is truly heartwarming to see and such a fitting start to the festival, he said. The Big Band Parade is always a highlight of the festival and I've missed it greatly these last two years. As a player and a teacher, it's fantastic to be back amongst the music and the rhythm. Performing with a 150-strong pipe band in one of Glasgow's most famous and celebrated cities is an experience unlike any other, and it's also made all the better knowing we are raising money for an amazing charity like Beatson Cancer Charity too. This year's Piping Lives Big Band Parade helped raise more than £1,000 for the Cancer Charity, with those taking part in the performance each donating cash. The festival is going on in the city until August 14th, with the World Pipe Band Championships, featuring, featuring nearly 150 bands, taking place over the weekend. Artists from one, 10 countries will participate, while the general festival schedule has pipers from as far afield as Iran, Estonia and Hungary performing. Audiences will also be able to tune into many of the events online. Bailey Annette Christie, Chair of Glasgow Life, said, Piping Live and the World Pipe Band Championships have been the cornerstone of Glasgow's cultural calendar for many years. We have missed the wonderful sights, sounds and thousands of UK and overseas visitors that these events bring to the city every August as Glasgow becomes the global home of piping. So, it's exciting to see them return with full in-person programmes that will ensure piping fans experience a truly spectacular week of traditional Scottish music and culture. That article was by Laura Webster. From the National, 
Monday the 8th of August 2022 from the, the comments section Steph Peaton Fascist movements are using public anger to mobilise in the UK by columnist Steph Peaton Crank up the music and strap yourself in It's the age of anger baby and it's all flowing in the wrong direction You can feel it in the air It's in every overflowing bin in the street Every half empty town centre that's been left to rot Every service with only half the staff needed to keep things running, amid the promise of more cuts to come. There's a feeling, a buzz, that things aren't quite right, that things are on the edge of slipping slowly at first and then all at once. The United Kingdom is angrier than ever, and it has every right to be. We've dragged ourselves through back-to-back crises for at least the past two decades, from the economic crash in 2008 to the recession that's just getting started, gnawing its way into our lives. And for what? To be told we have to quietly suffer stagnating wages and toxic workplace practices, lest we make a worse problem we didn't cause? We have a recession. We have spiralling food and energy costs, while the energy companies are in record-breaking profits. We have an unaccountable Westminster government that has been brazenly stuffing its pockets while bringing in legislation to make it harder and harder to hold them to account or even protest. There's a looming threat of climate change, while countries and companies bulldoze ahead with planet-destroying policies and profit generation without a care for the future. If you're not angry yet, you should be. It's like someone knocked over Pandora's box while parting it Downing Street circa 1907 and let forth the deluge of misery we've been dealing with ever since. Except instead of hope trailing out at the end, we've got 12 consecutive years of tolerated rule instead. And what services existed to deal with the misery? have been so stripped down and undermined by the Tories as to be rendered basically ineffective. If you're looking for a reason for the fury, look at to the above and then some. The anger is valid, justified, but its targets are not. Research is showing that since the Covid pandemic, the amount of abuse staff and shop workers are having to deal with is rapidly increasing. It's the reason you may have noticed more signage while out about asking people not to abuse staff, just trying to do their jobs. The working class has become a shield for bosses to hide behind. The workers don't set exorbitant prices. They don't leave stores and services vastly understaffed and under-equipped. They don't keep you in poverty wages while jetting off to their holiday homes. No, that's the choice of the bosses, confident they can slip out the back while frontline staff face the consequences. Throw into that a glut of social media services that thrive in abuse and misinformation and you've got a burning match sitting awfully close to a power keg. Britain is a fortress of class, replete with media mechanisms and institutions that protect the wealthy by turning our ire on each other rather than them. Misplaced anger is as British as talking about the weather. It's one of many reasons that these islands have avoided the revolutions of the past that swept across Europe and seemed almost certain to reach the streets of London and Glasgow, but didn't. As long as the working class is fighting among itself, how can it organise to take on the powerful? The situation is a perfect breeding ground for far-right recruitment, fascists who blame the worst excesses of capitalism and class, not on the chief executives and parliamentarians cutting welfare and healthcare, but instead on the migrants, the queers, women and minorities. Neo-Nazi groups are organising in the UK right now. Fascist party Patriotic Alternative was protesting outside drag queen story time events in England last week, 
complete with white supremacists and anti-LGBTQ plus slogans. There's a reason hate crimes on the rise in the UK alongside attacks on reproductive healthcare services and LGBTQ plus charities. So-called traditional values won't save us. Arguably, they've played a role in bringing us to the precipice. Instead of punching down, we need to be punching up at the real culprits behind our predicament. No easy thing given the existentially dire nature of the task. The popular Netflix documentary Trainwreck, Woodstock 99, feels particularly timely in this front, and not just because it's filling a hole left over from Fire Festival. I wasn't even aware there had been more than one Woodstock until the documentary was released, to be honest, but what seems clear was that the greatest factor on how the event went from music gig to Flaming Riot was the greed of the organisers. Price gouging young people at a festival, where bottles of water were reportedly sold for $12 a pop in extreme heat, no doubt led to revelers turning on the festival, as they did and, frankly, I can't blame them for it. We need class solidarity, and that means supporting our fellow workers, not taking your anger out on them. When strike action looms, remember that it is because of the behaviour of the bosses, not the workers. I'm angry, we're all angry. But that's not lose sight of who is really to blame. And that was a comment piece by Steph Peaton. From the National, Monday the 8th of August 2022, from the comment section, Jimmy Maxton, has Scotland fulfilled the potential the master of rhetoric saw? By columnist Michael Fry. The Scottish language of politics is pretty humdrum, but blazing oratory is fortunately not unknown either. Give us our parliament in Scotland. We will start with no traditions. We will start with ideals. We will start with purpose, with courage. We will start with the aim and object that there will be 134 men and women pledged to 134 Scottish constituencies to spend their whole brain power, their whole courage and their whole soul in making Scotland into a country in which we can take people from all the nations of the earth and say, this is our land, this is our Scotland, these are our people, these are our men, our works, our women and children. Can you beat it? Jimmy Maxton delivered this speech more than 100 years ago, just before he was about to be elected MP for Glasgow Bridgeton in the general election of 1922. He was soon recognised as one of the masters of rhetoric in his time. It is worth comparing what a modern Jimmy Maxton might say in similar circumstances. He supported Scottish Home Rule, as he always put it, but said nothing about the differences, if any, with the independence of the Irish Republic. It is doubtful he would get away with that today. After all, Gordon Brown wrote his doctoral thesis in Maxton, and in the air were were heavy hints that in government they might look much the same. They did so only as failures. Same goes with the generalities in policy. Ideals and purpose and courage still have their places in politics, just about, but surely we have learned over a century that they will not be as good, much good on their own. They need preparation in public debate and compromise with powerful opposition, if only to pick out the problems that emerge from detailed argument. We need to recall that Maxton, for all his talents, never got into ministerial office and left nothing on the statute book, only the columns of his windy prose in Hansard. We might wonder, now that Home Rule has gone on for nearly a quarter century, if it has fulfilled the potential he saw. Early recordings show Maxton spoke not the patter, 
not working class Glaswegian, but a rather a more neutral middle class accent, though still clearly from one of the west of Scotland. He had been born in 1885 in suburban Shaws, the son of school teachers who voted for the Liberal Unionist Party, that is, held rather conservative opinions. His upbringing was bourgeois throughout, bursary to Hutchinson's grammar school, Presbyterian morality, teacher training after a degree at the University of Glasgow, graduating in 1909. Maxton's radicalism was self-taught. He joined the Independent Labour Party, ILP, in 1904, preached the evangelical socialist culture of the time and cultivated the grandiloquence that marked his political reputation for years to come. He was a man with a striking physical appearance, a long mane of black hair and a tall spindly frame. He stood out from other politicians of his day through his humorous and passionate rapport with his audiences. While he was an admirer and in education matters, a colleague of the revolutionary socialist John McLean, also from Pollock's Maxton's socialism was at the outset a matter of gradual reforms, little influenced by Marxist dogma. His early career looked not so much revolutionary as bureaucratic. He got elected to the National Administrative Council of the ILP in 1912 and, from 1913 to 19, served as chairman of the Scottish Party. It took the First World War to raise Maxon's public profile as a militant activist. He was ready to throw away his personal career for the sake of, sake of his pacifism. In 1916, he got a prison sentence for a speech in Glasgow Green in protest against a deportation from the city of leading shop stewards. On his release in 1917, he still refused to do war work. More than any other leader or agitator, Maxton seemed to personify a plain pithiness in Red Clydeside, where industrial disputes and rent strikes counted for more than the fate of the Empire or Europe. After the war, Maxton again could find no paid job except as an organiser for the ILB, but that at least assured him victory at Bridgeton in 1922, the year of the party's breakthrough in the west of Scotland. It won 10 of Glasgow's 15 seats and others outside the city. A triumphant image showed up a new age of sensational political graphics. For example, it had the LIP victors cock a hoop as he caught the sleeper south at St Unique Station. The aim was to shake up Parliament, and Maxon led the pack. Tories were easy meat for him. To get expelled from the Commons Chamber, he just had to call them murderers and refused to withdraw. Yet it was not long before his warmth of personality won the affection of other politicians who joined him in the wilderness because nobody would listen to them either. Winston Churchill became a great admirer and John Buchan, something of a crony. Lefford links were closer. Maxton and his more calculating mentor, John Wheatley, kept the doctrinal fires burning bright red. This was easier in Scotland because the affiliated ILP remained more popular in the ground than the official National Labour Party. It was a difference between left and right, between militancy and gangelism. The ILP set out its ambitions in a programme, Socialism in Our Time, which provided the ideological ammunition for Maxon's eloquent assaults on unemployment and poverty. His relations with the Parliamentary Labour Party, led by Ramsay MacDonald, grew uneasy in the 1920s, with Maxton being accused of undemocratic behaviour and his disrespect for the executive. 
Maxton, in fact, became a fierce critic of the Labour government in 1929-31. His behaviour raised basic questions about the relationship between the parent party and the ILP and the freedom of action for a mere affiliate. They came to a head after Labour split and the formation of a national government. Maxton and the majority of the ILP opted for disaffiliation from Labour in 1932. History has not justified the rebels' intransigence. But even in the 21st century, leaders of the left have scorned gradualism in favour of principled opposition. Splinter groups performed a useful function in keeping the Labour Party alert to its values and aims, after these have been inevitably diluted by the demands of government. Still, it all leaves Labour politicians in the margins looking in, looking in the long run so that Baxton's experience was far more common than Brown's. After the rout of the left, Maxson drifted to the fringes. He turned his sights increasingly to international questions as a pacifist cause. The Spanish Civil War was the only armed conflict he ever supported. He found it in himself to oppose the struggle against Adolf Hitler. Feeling hell through just the impact of his interventions, he was a chain smoker all his adult life and an eventual victim of lung cancer in his 60s. But it was not for his standards of analysis that Maxson deserves to be remembered. He was a Scottish radical whose propagandist skills for the wider British Labour movement earned him folk hero status in social circles recalled today in hardly more hopeful conditions. And that was an opinion piece by Michael Fry. From The National, Monday the 8th of August 2022. From the opinion section, George Caravan, Scotland won't be able to ignore disaster of Trussie's lizonomics. By columnist George Caravan, there is, of course, a certain delicious joy in watching Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak tear lumps out of each other, but the likelihood is that Truss is going to win. This means the increasingly bonkers promise she is making to garner support from the Tory backwards are about to form the policy framework for the fag end of this Conservative government. Hang on to your hats. Truss is promising to divert or cancel the coming recession. That sounds like a good idea to most of us. Apart from Andrew Bailey, the overpromoted incompetent governor of the Bank of England, who actually wants a recession and an increase in unemployment. But hang on a bit, nothing our list is proposing will actually halt the recessionary storm. More likely it will make it worse. The bugbear is inflation. Bailey and his BOE bean counters initially ignored the growing signs of an inflationary wave. Then they told us it would be short-lived. And now, in the bank's latest forecast, it is predicting inflation will hit a whopping 13% this autumn. In the small print, they also admit inflation will be at least 10% next year. In response, Team Bailey proposes a recession to stymie wage demands and cool prices. Typically, they're as wrong now as they were before. In the real world, the business and financial community is predicting inflation is here to stay. One chief naysayer is hedge fund guru Crispin Ode a prominent financial backer of both the Brexit campaign and Boris Johnson, which is not stopping making money by shorting the pound during the Brexit negotiations. Ode has long predicted the return of inflation. Hedge funds make their cash from exploiting economic uncertainty. This year, Ode's main fund has more than doubled its value by betting on humongous inflation. The point is that if inflation is now driving the global economic motor, it will take much higher interest rates and much a much deeper recession in conventional bourgeois economic terms to bring it to an end. 
and there is absolutely no sign that energy inflation is going to end anytime soon. The recent metal meeting of the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, oil cartel, decided to increase output by only a whisker, meaning supplies barely keeping pace with demand. Shutting out Russian gas, no matter how politically justifiable, means higher prices till somebody finds an alternative. True, US natural gas production is now at an all-time high and increasing, but you still have to liquefy the stuff, stick it in expensive boats and get it across to Europe, where the Germans will pay over the odds for it. Even the economically illiterate can figure out that this permanent skyrocketing of energy costs is in itself the trigger for an economic slowdown. Inflation is robbing consumers of spending power and raising industrial costs, squeezing, eventually, profits. Sales and investment will contract of their own volition. As an advanced indicator, we have already seen a massive drop in the share of prices of leading high-tech and media conglomerates this year. This, in turn, is reducing unearned wealth, cheers, but making investors hoard cash, bad news for new industrial development. The response of central bankers, such as Andrew Bailey, has been to raise interest rates. This does nothing to deal with the core problem of rising energy prices, of course. Rather, it is designed to make a recession come faster, and so reduce energy demand quickly. It is also designed to show private investors that central banks will do what it takes to throttle wage demands. In other words, it is a piece of political blackmail aimed at the trade unions. Spoiler, the trouble is that the central bankers are scared of the politicians. After all, actually engineering a faster and deeper recession is bound to be unpopular with the poor, bloody electorate. Hence Trussie's public attack on Bailey and the Bank of England. She is running on a platform of stopping a recession, and she is hinting strongly about placing the BOE under stricter political direction, including rewriting its mandate setting out its official responsibilities. In the face of such political pressure, Bailey and co have dithered on raising interest rates, then they raised them only a bit. This dithering is actually catastrophic. By raising rates after inflation had already started slowing the economy, Bailey has only succeeded in pouring petrol in the fire. The economy was already heading for recession without the bank's rate hike. Rising rates now is an additional breaking power at precisely the wrong moment, which means an even deeper recession. Can Queen Liz come to the rescue? Absolutely not. First up, she plans to use the £30 billion Chancellor Sunak has squirrelled away in his budget to bribe voters in 2024, to cut taxes and boost consumer spending. Alas, that is nowhere near enough to offset the consumer spending power eaten up by rising energy prices. Trust is also talking about even more public borrowing, but increased public borrowing at the time of interest rates rising will only result in the Treasury forking out more than debt repayment, actually squeezing public services. Let me give you a wee example. The Treasury and Bank of England saved the economy during the 2008 banking crisis and later during the pandemic by a thing called quantitative easing, QE. Essentially, the Bank of England printed £850 billion in form of electronic money, called special reserves, and pumped it into the economy. But to get the banks to accept this invented money, the Bank of England has to pay interest on it. Interest is Treasury i.e. the taxpayer, has to guarantee you. 
The more the Bank of England puts up interest rates, the more the Treasury is liable for this bill for QE. I'd love to be in the room when Bailey explains this to Truss. So don't raise interest rates, I hear from the back of the room. But if the Bank of England does not raise UK interest rates, money will flow out of Britain to America, where the Federal Reserve is predicted to raise its own rate to around 4%. That's more than double the current UK rate. Any lag between UK and US interest rates means the pound falls in value. In turn, that means all of our imports cost more, adding to inflation. Here in Scotland, we are mere spectators while Liz and Dishi Rishi suck it out. Liz, of course, has promised to go on ignoring us anyway. Alas, we won't be able to ignore Lizonomics when it hits us. The Bank of England predicts that the economy will enter recession in the final quarter of 2022, just in time for Christmas. Lizonomics may cut taxes, but inflation is going to go on rising. That means higher interest rates and deeper recession. Faced with economic disaster in an election year, Liz will invent political scapegoats galore. Trade unions, immigrants, the EU and, naturally, the jocks. So no referendum and repeated attempts to override Holyrood from Westminster. The poor folk of Paisley will be sick of being told that Liz is really one of them. Alas for Liz, the Tories only managed five seats out of 43 in Renfrewshire in this year's locals. Conclusion, Time Scotland took matters into its own hands. And that was a comment piece by George Caravan. From the National, Tuesday the 9th of August 2022, from the news section, Marks and Spencer announces nationwide ban on barbecues amid Met Office heatwave warning, by Kieran Doody. Marks and Spencer has announced a nationwide ban on a popular summer item in stores across the UK. The retailer has confirmed disposable barbecues will no longer be on sale in M&S stores in a precautionary step amid a string of heatwaves in England and Wales. A tweet from the official MS account said, We'd already stopped selling disposable barbecues near national parks and in London, but given the unusually hot and dry conditions, we've taken the precautionary step of removing them from sale across the UK. Barbecue warning ahead of UK heatwave. The move comes as firefighters warn there is an increased risk of fires due to the heatwave. In the past five years, London's firefighters have attended almost 600 fires involving barbecues, 45 of which were on private balconies. The Brigade's Assistant Commissioner for Fire Safety, Charlie Pugsley, said, We want people to enjoy the glorious weather and do so safely. Barbecuing on dry grass is reckless and can easily cause a really serious fire, damaging the immediate area and risking nearby properties. We're also urging people to think twice about having barbecues on balconies. It's easier than you might think for a balcony fire to spread to others, which could not only leave your homeless, but displace hundreds of your neighbours too. We're not trying to take the fun out of the heatwave, but for the sake of our city, and of our firefighters, who have to work in sweltering temperatures to tackle these blazes, we'd really like people to take our advice on board. We're asking the public to remain vigilant and call 999 as soon as they see any signs of smouldering grass. The London Fire Brigade appeared to praise the move from MS, tweeting, We want to work with retailers to stop the sale of disposable barbecues and reduce the risk of dangerous grass fires. 
Temperatures are set to rise to the mid-30s in parts of southern England, as high pressure brings more hot, dry weather, following months of low rainfall, which have left the country facing the spectre of downfall drought. The conditions have left the countryside, as well as urban parks and gardens, extremely dry, raising the risk of more devastating wildfires, with rivers, groundwater and reservoirs at low levels. And that article is by Kieran Doody. The National Politics on Wednesday the 10th of August. Energy bosses set to meet with Nadim Sahawi as prices soar. An article written by Adam Robertson. Energy sector bosses are set to take part in crisis talks with Chancellor Nadim Sahawi and Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng. This comes as the price cap is set to hit more than £4,200 in January. There's been widespread anger towards Shell, BP and British gas owner Centrica, all announcing huge profits while households continue to struggle with the cost of living. Shell's profits hit a record £9.5 billion in the second quarter of this year, breaking the previous all-time high of £7.5 billion recorded in the first quarter of 2022. Meanwhile, Centrica saw its operating profits increase to £1.34 billion across the first six months of 2022, an increase of £262 million on the previous year. The Sun reported gas and electricity executives are set to meet with the Cabinet Ministers on Thursday morning. It's expected energy bosses will be asked to submit a breakdown of expected profits and payouts, as well as their investment plans for the next three years. This comes as Liz Truss labelled proposals to agree support for rising energy bills with the government and Rishi Sunak before the leadership contest is over as bizarre. The front-runner in the race to succeed Boris Johnson made the comments as she and her opponent faced growing calls to explain how they plan to deal with a spike in energy prices. The overall debt bill is already three times higher than a year ago, with experts at USwitch saying that it seems likely it'll grow further over the winter. Six million homes across the UK owe an average of £206 to their energy provider, according to a survey from the company. In April, the same average figure stood at £188. The government has already promised £400 to every household, as well as extra help for the more vulnerable. On Monday, Nicola Sturgeon called on Mr Johnson to hold an immediate emergency meeting to address the cost-of-living crisis. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News, on Wednesday the 10th of August. Four days of Royal Mail strike action to take place, Union confirms. An article written by Rebecca Carey. Royal Mail postal workers have announced strike action over four days in August and September. More than 115,000 postal workers are to stage a series of strikes in the coming weeks in a dispute over pay, the Communication Workers' Union has confirmed. The CWU has said that it will be the biggest strike of the summer so far to demand a dignified proper pay rise. Industrial action will be held on Friday, August 26th and Wednesday, August 31st. Strikes will then continue on Thursday, September 8th and Friday, September 9th. The decision comes after a recent ballot for strike action, which saw members vote by 97.6% on a 77% turnout to take action. Management had responded by imposing a 2% pay rise, the union has said. The CWU believes this would lead to a dramatic reduction in workers' living standards because of soaring inflation. 
CWU General Secretary Dave Ward added, Nobody takes the decision to strike lightly, but postal workers are being pushed to the brink. There can be no doubt that postal workers are completely united in their determination to secure a dignified, proper pay rise they deserve. We can't keep on living in a country where bosses rake in millions in profits while their employees are forced to use food banks. When Royal Mail bosses are raking in £758 million in profits and shareholders pocketing £400 million, our members won't accept pleading of poverty from the company. Postal workers won't meekly accept their living standards being hammered by greedy business leaders who are completely out of touch with modern Britain. They are sick of corporate failure getting rewarded again and again. The CWU's message to Royal Mail's leadership is simple. There will be serious disruption until you get real on pay. CWU Deputy General Secretary Terry Pullinger added, Our members know full well what they're worth. They're willing to fight for a no-strings, real-term pay rise that they're fully entitled to. No worker wants to be in this position, but since this dispute began, we eagerly pursued discussions and negotiations. But this was rejected by management, who have left us with no choice but to fight. Our members deserve a pay rise that rewards their fantastic achievements in keeping the country connected during the pandemic, but also keeps them keep up during the current economic crisis. We won't be backing down until we get just that. Royal Mail has also released a statement following the news. Ricky McCauley, Operations Director at Royal Mail, said, After more than three months of talks, the CWU has failed to engage in any meaningful discussion on the changes we need to modernise or to come up with alternative ideas. The CWU rejected our offer worth up to 5.5% for CWU-grade colleagues, the biggest increase we've offered for many years. In a business that's currently losing £1 million per day, we can only fund this offer by agreeing the changes that will pay for it. Royal Mail can have a bright future, but we can't achieve that by living in the past. By modernising, we can offer more of what our customers want at a price they're willing to pay, all whilst protecting jobs on the best terms and conditions in our industry. The CWU's failure to engage on the changes we need is an abdication of responsibility for the long-term job security of their members. We apologise to our customers for the disruption that CWU's industrial action will cause. We're ready to talk further with the union to try and avert damaging industrial action, but as we have consistently said, it must be about both change and pay. We have contingency plans in place and will be working hard to minimise disruption and get our services back to normal as soon as we can to keep people, businesses and the country connected. An article written by Rebecca Carey. The National Politics on Wednesday the 10th of August. IndyRef2 is absolutely the right thing to do, according to Jeremy Corbyn. An article written by Hamish Morrison. Labour's been urged to dump their increasingly untenable opposition to IndyRef2 after former leader Jeremy Corbyn said having a second vote is the right thing to do. Speaking at an Edinburgh Fringe show on Tuesday, the MP, who's been expelled from the Parliamentary Party by Sir Keir Starmer, said it was not right for Westminster to tell Scotland it cannot have a choice on the constitutional question. In an interview with The Times journalist Graham Spears at the event, called In Conversation with Jeremy Corbyn, the former Labour leader said, If the people of Scotland, the Scottish Parliament, demand a referendum, then it's absolutely the right thing to do. 
I don't think it's right for the Westminster government to say, no, you can't have a choice. You have to have a choice. You have got to do it with your eyes open. What's the economic option that's on offer? What's the relationship that could be? And would a federal settlement work better? The UK government announced on Tuesday it had submitted its counter-arguments in the Supreme Court case to determine whether Holyrood can hold a referendum without Westminster's permission. It's expected to argue that the Scottish government would need to have reserved powers on the constitution temporarily devolved through a Section 30 order to carry out a second vote, but the Scottish government and the SNP are arguing because the referendum would not be legally binding, this is unnecessary. Mr Starmer has confirmed he would block a Section 30 order if he became the next Prime Minister, saying having another vote on Scotland's future would be divisive. The SNP has capitalised on Mr Corbyn's comments, saying he's shown the Islington North MP understands that Labour's stand with the Tories in trying to block democracy is increasingly untenable. Michelle Thompson, SNP MSP for Falkirk East, said... After the SNP's overwhelming victory last May, the case for holding a referendum is undeniable, and Scottish Labour's ludicrous Trump-like denial of this is one of the many reasons people across Scotland don't trust them. While Anna Sawa continues to team up with the Tories, supporting Brexit, dodgy council coalitions and standing in the way of Scotland's choice, it only serves to illustrate that Scotland needs to have the chance to build a better future as an independent country and escape a future controlled by Westminster parties intent on ignoring our voice. Mr Starmer has come under fire in recent weeks for his tepid response to widespread strikes across the country, including sacking one of his top team for appearing on a picket line. But asked for his view on a successor's approach to industrial disputes, Mr Corbyn said he did not want to wade into personal politics. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Wednesday the 10th of August. Lord of the Rings actor refuses to take scripts which mock Scottish accents. An article written by Ninian Wilson. Lord of the Rings star Billy Boyd has called out the stereotypical treatment of Scottish accents in the film industry, saying jokes about not understanding it are overdone. Mr Boyd has claimed that he will refuse any script which employs the trope where the accent is incomprehensible, something he says that always pops up in the roles he's sent. The Scottish actor who played Peregrine Pippin Took in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy told of how the tired gag annoys him and that it's not realistic. The Glaswegian actor, who now lives in the United States, told the My Time Capsule podcast, I hate people saying they can't understand what I'm saying. As a Scottish actor, every script I get that's got a Scottish character in it, there's always the gag that somebody can't understand them. Always. Anything I do now, if that gag's in it, I say I won't do it. The gag is overdone and not realistic. It's just like, stop being stereotypical, you know? Just because someone has a different accent. So for the writers who write that gag, I apologise when I lose my mind in the writing room. It's just that I've read it so many times. And just last year, the Uncharted film, starring Tom Holland, was mocked on Twitter for joking that the accent was incomprehensible, with a threat from a Scottish hard man going over the protagonist's head. The scene even prompted a response from Glaswegian comedian Limmy on social media, who gave a response in his trademark tongue-in-cheek style. The Uncharted film was not the first, and probably not the last, to mistreat the Scottish accent. 
From Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade to Kate Blanchett in How to Train Your Dragon 2, there are plenty of examples to wind us up. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday the 10th of August. Protest held inside Scottish Power headquarters. An article written by Hamish Morrison. Activists took part in a demonstration inside the headquarters of an energy giant in protest over soaring bills. Members of the Scottish Resistance and other activists invaded the Glasgow offices of Scottish Power yesterday morning, demanding a meeting with the firm's chief executive. The small band of activists, led by activist and pro-independence campaigner Sean Clarkin, also urged people to back the Don't Pay campaign, which is telling bill payers to cancel their energy payments in protest over rocketing prices. Activists left the premises after around 10 minutes, and the National understands no arrests were made. Mr Clarkin and James Scott, the chief organiser of the Scottish Resistance, gave speeches within the lobby of the building, urging both the government and energy companies to take urgent action to tackle the rising cost of living. Mr Clarkin said, It's all about saying to the Westminster government that these price hikes in energy are unacceptable. They have to bring in a standard tariff, where they basically decouple the price of oil and gas from the international market and go from the renewables and the nuclear to the highest of gas and oil, average the price out and you'll have a far lower tariff for everybody. And also bring in a social tariff of discounted prices for the sick, the disabled, the dying and the elderly for this winter, because if you don't do that, a lot of people are going to starve and die of cold-related death this winter. A Police Scotland spokesperson said there were no arrests, the protest was peaceful and the demonstrators left at the request of police. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National Politics on Wednesday the 10th of August. UK submits its case against Scots held Indiref to court. A front page article written by Xander Elliott's. The UK government has submitted its legal argument against Scotland holding an independence referendum without Westminster's consent. The Conservative government has asked the Supreme Court for permission to publish the submission in full. It comes after the Tories failed in their bid to have the top court throw out the case before hearing evidence, claiming it was premature. Scotland's top law officer, Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain QC, referred a prospective referendum bill to the Supreme Court last month to ascertain if it was within the powers of the Scottish Parliament. The Scottish Government published its draft bill, which would legislate for a referendum on October 19, 2023, in late June. Oral arguments are due to be heard in the case in October, but the Advocate-General for Scotland, Keith Stewart QC, submitted the case against the bill being within the legislative competence of Holyrood yesterday. A spokesperson for the UK government said, People across Scotland want both their governments to be working together on the issues that matter to them and their families, not talking about another independence referendum. We have today submitted our written case to the Supreme Court in accordance with its timetable. On the question of legislative competence, the UK government's clear view remains that a bill legislating for a referendum on independence would be outside the legislative competence of the Scottish Parliament. In its submission to the court last month, the Scottish government leaned heavily on any future referendum not being self-executing, 
meaning it would be purely advisory and only meant as a way to ascertain the views of the Scottish people. Law experts remain split on whether this would be legal. Adam Tompkins, the Glasgow University professor and former Tory MSP, said in June that a consultative document would be within Holyrood's powers. The SNP has also made an attempt to intervene in the case, arguing that as a public body it would be fair, just and reasonable for the party to make arguments to the court. If the court rules that holding the consultative ballot is outside of Holyrood's powers, Ms Sturgeon has pledged to use the next general election as a de facto independence referendum. There is little chance of a UK Prime Minister granting a Section 30 order which would sidestep the legal issue by allowing Holyrood to legislate for a referendum as it did for the 2014 vote. Boris Johnson, the outgoing Tory leader, is set to be replaced by either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak in September. Both candidates have been emphatic they would rule out a second independence referendum. A front-page article written by Xander Elliotts. From The National, Thursday the 11th of August, 2022, from the sports section. It's been an emotional journey. Olympic curling champion Eve Muirhead retires. Olympic champion Eve Muirhead has announced her retirement from curling. Muirhead skippered Team GB to gold at the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, adding to bronze from Sochi 2014 and also claimed world and European titles during her career. After 15 years of international curling and 21 international titles, I have made the hardest decision of my life to hang up my curling shoes and retire, Muirhead said in a post on social media. Throughout my career, and like most athletes, I have experienced both the highest of the highs, becoming an Olympic champion, and the lowest of lows, and at times the future seemed very distant. It's been an emotional journey, but a journey that I am incredibly proud of. Behind every athlete is a team, and I have had the opportunity to work with some of the best, and therefore there are many thanks to be made. I can't thank everyone here but will do so individually, I hope, over the coming weeks. Muirhead, 32, paid tribute to the support of all her teammates from the bottom of my heart, as well as from the funding received from the National Lottery and UK Sport for the British Curling and Scottish Curling programmes. Being skip and representing Team Muirhead, Great Britain and Scotland over the years has been a real honour and one I have never taken for granted, she added. Retiring from curling as a current European, world and Olympic champion is something I always dreamt of, and I am signing off with a huge smile on my face. With regard to what's next, I am looking forward to exploring more opportunities and getting my golf clubs out. But watch this space. From The National, Thursday the 11th of August 2022, from the sports section. Rangers fear no foe in Ibrox Fortress as Giovanni van Bronckhurst's adds to European aura by Christopher Jack. They thought it was all over. Union saint Gilloise really should have known better. The history and the evidence built up over the last four seasons was there in front of them. Understanding and respecting it is one thing, but being able to handle it is quite another. It was the 11 men on the park that beat Union, 
but the twelfth man off it more than played a part as the visitors crumbled in the Champions League, their two-goal lead ultimately not enough as Giovanni van Bronckhurst's side won by three on a remarkable, raucous evening. Of the last 32 European fixtures at Ibrox since 2018, Rangers have now won 22 of them. When the six draws and four defeats are analysed, they reveal many missed opportunities and stories of what might have been rather than a host of occasions where Rangers have been outclassed. The Belgians are not the biggest name to be added to the Ibrox list, but they are the latest team to fall. What is certain is that they will not be the last. Villarreal, Feyenoord, Porto and Braga were beaten as Steven Gerrard set about restoring Rangers' reputation on the continent. From the farce of progress, Rangers became a European force. In less than 12 months, Van Bronckhurst has given supporters memories to last a lifetime, and the comeback win that set up a playoff meeting with PSV carries a significance of its own for a team who have shown their talent and mentality on the biggest stage. Borussia Dortmund should have been beaten, but Red Star Belgrade and Braga eventually were taken care of on incredible occasions. When it comes to that night against RB Leipzig, Nothing else needs to be said, apart from the mention of it. It has been chaotic rather than controlled at times, but the concoction is an intoxicating one, as Rangers have punched above their weight and left many with bloody noses after landing knockout blows under the floodlights. The Ibrox factor cannot be calculated or planned for. It is something which managers and players speak about, yet cannot really put their finger on what it is or why it inspires and spooks in equal measure as Rangers raise their game and the opposition lose their shape. The crowd can be notoriously unforgiving and difficult to play in front of. The demands are incessant and the pressure visibly weighs on those who do not have the fortitude to handle it once they have pulled on that famous blue jersey. It is all very fine and well having the technical ability or technical nous to play for Rangers, but without the mental strength that is a prerequisite of anyone that signs on there, Ibrox will chew you up and spit you out. It takes time, a commodity that is in short supply, to become accustomed to the moans and groans that can act like a vice-like grip on the mind and only those of a certain character will be able to meet the expectations of a fan base who never accept second best. Once you earn their trust, Ibrox is a very different place to play. When those on the park are unison with those off it, anything is possible, and the energy that courses through the stands sends surge of adrenaline through the individuals and the collective as new heights are reached and the seemingly impossible achieved. In some instances, the impact of the crowd serves only to inspire Rangers. In others, it can have a negative effect on the opposition as well as a positive one on those in blue. Union was seen off by, by Van Bronckhurst's side, but they were also beaten by a 48,000 strong crowd that has seen its own reputation restored and enhanced in line with the strides forward that Rangers have taken over recent seasons. The narrative around the words and actions of Karol Yeretz and his players 
has become a sideshow to the main event this week, but it all played into the feeling that Rangers knew the tie wasn't over, despite the nature of their 2-0 defeat the previous week. John Lundström labelled Union disrespectful on Monday afternoon as he addressed the post-match celebrations at Dendrief and what was seen as overconfidence from the Belgian camp as the likes of Sieber van der Heiden and Teddy Teumer spoke about what awaited them in Gavin. Ironically, it was the fullback who broke Union's resistance as his inexplicable handball allowed James Tavernier to open the scoring from the spot. After Antonio Korak and Malik Tillman had won the game and the tie, Lazare Amani saw red as the visitors finished with ten men. Union's words and actions weren't that far over the top and didn't really cross the line, but Lundström's stance added another factor to the occasion, and his Instagram message of chat shit get banged was lapped up by those who had bought into the siege mentality stance through a high-energy, high-stakes 90 minutes. There will come a time when a deficit proves too difficult to overcome, but there was never a feeling that Tuesday night was going to be that game, and the conviction and drive of von Bronckhurst's side is a sight to behold on this European stage. Gerard made Rangers believe they could compete with anyone once again. Now Rangers reckon they can beat anyone, especially at Ibrox. If a group stage berth is to be secured this term, then PSV will surely need to be overcome next week, as van Bronckhurst attempts to take a league back to his homeland for the defining second leg. Rangers will respect PSV, but they need not fear them. When they have Ibrox behind them, they shouldn't have any doubts about what is possible at home or abroad. Union have taken their place on an illustrious list. Now Rangers have another European giant to topple. This article was by Christopher Jack. The National, August 11. Leader of the House of Commons says Cabinet has not met since end of July. Report by Adam Robertson The Leader of the House of Commons, Mark Spencer, has said that the Cabinet has not met since the end of July, during an interview on BBC Breakfast. This comes as financial expert Martin Lewis says that the energy crisis will reach the scale of the pandemic. Energy bosses are set to meet with Chancellor Nadim Zahawi on Thursday as today, as the price cap is set to hit more than £4,200 in January. Asked by presenter Charlie State about the last time Cabinet met, Spencer responded, Cabinet met before the House of Commons rose, but of course, we are in constant contact with each other. The government continues to function, and I think there are a number of packages that are already organised that are coming down the track to help and support people. On Monday, Nicola Sturgeon wrote to Boris Johnson, asking him to convene an emergency meeting in order to tackle the growing cost of living crisis. This followed the news from the Bank of England 
that inflation will peak at more than 13% and that the UK was set to fall into its longest recession since the financial crisis. State continued to press Spencer for a specific time on when Cabinet last met, to which the MP for Sherwood said, just before the House of Commons rose at the end of the month, at the end of July. Spencer was then directly asked about comments made by Martin Lewis on Wednesday. The consumer champion hit back at the government's suggestion that nothing could be done about the energy crisis until a successor was appointed as complete bull. Spencer continued, well, it doesn't require the whole cabinet to respond because clearly the Chancellor of the Exchequer is still in his office and delivering within the Treasury. The Business Secretary is still functioning within that department. It doesn't require every member of the Cabinet to get round the same table. It requires those people within government to focus on their job, and that's exactly what they are doing. Report by Adam Robertson The National August 11. Macmillan welcomes £10 million boost to help cut cancer waiting times. Report by Sean Bell. A major cancer charity has welcomed extra funding to improve waiting times for Scottish cancer patients, but warned that without ongoing action, the situation may grow much worse before it gets better. The Scottish Government this week confirmed an additional £10 million to be shared among health boards to boost the number of cancer operations available, create extra clinics and upskill new staff to speed up the delivery of endoscopy, radiology and chemotherapy treatment. This builds on the Scottish Government's existing £114.5 million National Cancer Plan. Announcing the new funding while visiting NHS Forth Valley's Breast Cancer One-Stop Clinic, Health Secretary Humza Yusuf noted that NHS Scotland has consistently met the 31-day standard for starting cancer treatment one of the two waiting time standards for cancer in Scotland, despite the challenges of the pandemic. However, he said, we must do more to improve our 62-day performance. Responding to the announcement, Gordon McLean, Strategic Partnership Manager for Macmillan Cancer Support in Scotland, told The National, Additional funding is certainly welcome and needed, but cancer care in Scotland is facing a serious crisis and the scale of the problem should not be underestimated. Noting that more and more people are facing delays to life-saving cancer treatment and potential late diagnosis, McLean added, ongoing action is needed now for people with cancer in Scotland or the situation may grow much worse before it gets better. Macmillan Cancer Support has called on the Scottish Government to ensure existing promises to support the recovery of clinical cancer services 
and the wider cancer workforce are delivered and to develop an effective new strategy to tackle cancer in Scotland for the next decade. The announcement also prompted criticism from several opposition parties. The Scottish Lib Dems' Willie Rennie commented that Yusuf's NHS recovery plan is in tatters, saying, people are waiting far too long for care and I am worried that this funding will not even touch the sides. Scottish Conservative Shadow Public Health Minister Tess White also commented, the most recent official figures, the worst on record, show that almost a quarter of patients with an urgent suspicion of cancer did not begin treatment within 62 days. White described this as a ticking time bomb that will inevitably lead to avoidable deaths. Report by Sean Bell. The National, August 11. Sunak slammed for incredible ignorance on drugs. Report by Sean Bell. Tory leadership hopeful Rishi Sunak has faced cross-party condemnation after pledging to be incredibly tough on drug users should he become Prime Minister. Speaking at a Tory leadership hustings in Darlington, Sunak reportedly said, Drugs are horrific. There is nothing recreational about them. I have never taken them and will be incredibly tough on anyone who does. Speaking to The National, SNP MP and vocal advocate of drug law reform, Ronnie Cowan, described Sunak's remarks as callous and cruel and said that the former Chancellor had displayed an incredible ignorance of the subject matter. Cowan said that Sunak cannot possibly believe that nobody takes drugs recreationally, adding, he should ask his own party MPs about that. Many have, and some still do partake. By pursuing the same policies of criminalising, persecuting and prosecuting that we have followed for over 50 years, he can only expect the same outcome, increasing drug deaths, increasing addiction and harm, and increasing the number of people being incarcerated. Cowan maintained that the UK government is standing in the way of safe consumption rooms, supervised healthcare facilities where drug users can consume drugs in safe conditions, saying, until we accept that drug abuse and addiction is a health issue and not a criminal justice one, we shall always be inclined to persecute those affected. Scottish Labour MSP Paul Sweeney, who has proposed legislation in Holyrood to introduce safe consumption rooms in Scotland, told The National that Sunak's comments show how depressingly out of touch he has become in his bid for number 10. Noting that one main driver for drug misuse is poverty, Sweeney said, It is no surprise that the richest man to ever sit in the House of Commons cannot begin to understand why people misuse drugs 
when he's never experienced a single second of hardship in his life. Scottish Green Justice spokesperson Maggie Chapman said that the Tories' approach to drugs had, de dom had demonstrably failed, both in terms of restricting the misuse of drugs and in protecting people and communities from the harm they cause. No amount of rhetoric or demonization from Rishi Sunak can change that. Chapman called for a new approach which treated drugs as a public health emergency and focuses upon tackling inequality and providing support, rehabilitation and dignity. Scottish Lib Dem drug spokesperson Ben Laurie added that Sunak is stuck in the 20th century, saying that the UK has fought a war on drugs where the most vulnerable are the casualties, and the solution is to learn from the policies of those countries which focus on harm reduction. In addition to safe consumption rooms, Laurie said, this meant new specialist family drug and alcohol commissions, an end to imprisonment for possession, and a regulated cannabis market, which would take it out of the hands of criminals and provide a much needed boost for the Treasury. Report by Sean Bell. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.